Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote in the United States in 1920. Soon after, Florida sisters Carrie and Ella Rossiter were each running successful businesses. They were very strong, influential women, great business sense. They felt that women's abilities were not tied to their sex. We'll discuss the work of bioarchaeologist Alish Hardlishka in Florida. He tried to put together a kind of a holistic, all-encompassing view of what indigenous life in Florida specifically looked like. And we'll talk about Lillian Smith, best known for her novel, Strange Fruit. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Shortly after women acquired the right to vote in 1920, Ella Rossiter, who was born in 1900, started a successful insurance agency. Her older sister, Carrie Rossiter, had been well prepared to take over her father's Standard Oil Agency when he died in 1921. Carrie was just 23 years old. Barbara West is the site manager of the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley. It actually began when she was about 17 years old. Uh, she was invited by her father to help him out in the business, and she being the eldest child, uh, her sister and three younger brothers were too young and <clears throat> involved, still involved in their schooling. So she started working in her father's business, and he taught her all of the practices. He introduced her to all of his clients. Uh, she worked with the billing. So she, she really gained firsthand knowledge of how to run his business. Um, and then, of course, um, in 1920, when the women got the vote, um, about, as you said, about six months or so later is when um, Mr. Rossiter passed away and, and Carrie stepped in to fill his shoes. Carrie Rossiter traveled to a Standard Oil Board of Directors meeting in Kentucky to ask permission to take over her father's agency. She listened at the keyhole as a heated debate took place. Finally, somebody yelled, let the little lady have it, she'll fail in a year and we'll give it to a man. But that's not what happened. She ran that agency for 62 years before finally retiring in 1983. It was a very long, successful relationship. They adored her, and in fact, uh, on her 50th anniversary with Standard Oil, they featured her in a long article and, and the cover of their shareholders magazine, 
and they thought the world of her. Above and, and beyond all else, Carrie was a lady, and she was very prim and proper, always dressed in her hat, always with her gloves, very assertive, but always a lady, and they loved that about her. And she became a poster child, if you will, for Standard Oil and later Chevron USA. Upon her retirement, then-President Ronald Reagan sent Carrie Rossiter a handwritten note of congratulations. The Rossiter family home is now operated as the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens. Half a century before the Rossiter family occupied the property, John Carroll Houston established there the oldest homestead in the 100 miles between New Smyrna and Jupiter Inlet, Barbara West. It was meant to be a plantation. Arlington was the name. And when he came in um, 1849 and started scouting the property, he was a soldier at that time. He actually obtained the property in 1859 and brought his sons and his slaves. He had up to about 10 slaves down there. And they built the family home, which was the first home in that area. Also, all of the slave cabins were there. And the history is that the last remaining slave cabin was developed into the kitchen of what was to become the Rossiter home. So it went through several different families before uh, it came into the Rossiter family in 1904. Twenty years after slavery ended in the United States, William Raish and his family lived on the property beginning in 1885. The Rossiter family continued building out from the former slave cabin in the early 20th century. By 1908, that structure was connected to a two-story home. In the mid-1970s, Girl Scout India Fraser recorded an interview with Carrie Rossiter. Carrie explained that her mother was from Palatka, Florida, and her father was from Georgia. She described hitching a ride on the mailboat as a child. The mail um, boat left about 7 in the morning. And, of course, the night before, I didn't sleep very well. I wiggled all night and woke up early in the morning because it was one of the exciting experiences of my life. And we'd go down to the water, and in the morning early, the river was very calm. You could look down and see that at that time the river was clear. You could look down and see the fish, and it had a salty smell, which was very exciting. The, ma the boat would usually be running when we got down there. And the ma then in time, the mailman came with his mail sack, and we started to cross the river to Merritt Island. Now, our first stop was over at, at Tropic. That was the name of the little settlement, Tropic. And um, we'd stop at the dock, and uh, one of the Enzes would come down with a... Um, orange juice and cookies for us and we'd put off the mail and these people would usually send their order for groceries up by the mailman to Coco which would be brought back on the trip home and then the next drop was Lotus and that was called the o Osteen Dock and they would come down with food, uh, cookies or coffee for the adults and We'd have a very enjoyable, usually the children would come down and bring their pets with them. And so, of course, that was exciting. Then we'd go on up to the Georgiana stop, and the same thing would happen. Uh, maybe one of the people who lived in Georgiana would 
be very famous for her cookies or some other goodies, and they would always bring them down for all the people on the boat. The next stop was um, Footman, and uh, the same thing would happen there. Always, some of the children would have something new to show us, a bird or a possum or a new dog or some, something that we were very interested in. And then we would go on into Coco. And the mailboat would, end, would land in Coco and everybody would get off and go do their shopping or their errands in Coco. And um, then, usually, then we'd have lunch. And I remember there was a little lunch place, a little tea room near the boat that had ham sandwiches in buns. And I have never tasted anything and with a Coke as good in my life as those sandwiches. By that time, we were quite exhausted. We'd usually go back to the boat and have a little nap. And um, around, I guess, 5 o'clock, the, train, the train would come in and the mailman would bring his sack back to the boat and off we'd go again. Now going back, there was one great mystery, that I was a grown up lady before I ever knew what it was. There was one dock, no children or ladies could go ashore, just the men. And the men all wanted to go ashore, they were anxious to go ashore. And it was years later that I learned there was a moonshine still in a little packing house at the end of that dock. But it was a mystery for years and years and years. And uh, I've, I've had many trips on boats since, but I have never had the enjoyment or the thrill and excitement that the trip between O'Galley and Coco with the mail. The Rossiter House Museum preserves the home as it was when Carrie and Ella grew up there in the early 20th century. Site manager Barbara West. One of the artifacts in that ladies' parlor is the gilded bird cage, and it's a mechanical musical bird cage. It has a musical bird that flaps his wings. It's said to be a finch, and it has real bird feathers on it. And Carrie used to say that they loved to play it, but they were only allowed to play it on special occasions. Now we play it almost every time we have a tour there, and it's one of the most popular artifacts. Also, there um, in the gentleman's parlor is, the, is Mr. Rossiter's ivory-topped walking cane, uh, his cigar thermidor, because this was the only room in the house that he was allowed to smoke in. And in fact, women weren't in, allowed in unless they were invited. But right now, we also keep Ella Rojero Rossiter's Mahjong case in there. And she loved Oriental antiques. She loved Mahjong. And this Mahjong case is made from bamboo. Uh, the tiles are hand-painted ivory tiles, and it said that she imported that from the Orient so that she would have a special game to play. Another um, artifact that gets quite a bit of attention are the Limoges fish plates or fish serving sets. Uh, the Rossiters loved to entertain, and they had many different sets of various kinds of dishes, but this Limoges set is, is all hand-colored and, and then fired, and it's 
just beautiful. And we love to bring that out and show it to people when they visit. A century ago, the Rossiter sisters each became successful businesswomen in Florida, with Carrie Rossiter gaining national recognition. Barbara West says that their story has relevance for women today. They were very strong, influential women, great business sense. They felt that um, women's abilities were not tied to their sex. Barbara West is site manager of the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley. Tours are currently by appointment only and masks are required for entry. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture. Watch our television series, Florida Frontiers. Subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. <laughs> Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, several noteworthy anthropologists came to Florida in the late 1800s and early 1900s as that branch of science was just developing. One of those was Alish Hardlishka. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Hardlishka actually immigrated to the United States sometime in the 1880s, early 1880s. He was of Czechoslovakian heritage, came here with his parents. He was educated at home and actually started gravitating more towards medicine, traditional medicine. In fact, he became a doctor. He was a practicing doctor in the 1890s. And then through a series of meetings with scientists at the Smithsonian Institution, the Peabody Museum at Yale University, he started becoming very interested in the development of human origins with anthropology. So he started kind of moving into that science and ultimately really developed that science. So he started taking what he understood about anatomy, human anatomy, and, and the medical sciences, and applied that methodology towards, as you said, what would become this modern science of anthropology at the turn of the century, you know, into the progressive era in the United States. And he spent the rest of his life in the U.S. He practiced and really developed and, and honed his skills, but traveled the world as well. He came up with a lot of theories today, some of which we accept, some uh, we may not, but came up with a lot of the methodologies, at least, that bioarchaeologists are still employing in the field when encountering human remains, especially indigenous human remains. He spent time, of course, in the United States, but also in Asia, throughout Europe, and developed these kind of global theories about human migration that we still look at today and still study today. Now, Hardlishka's work in Florida was compiled into a book that was published in 1922, and you have a copy of it here in the archive. Yeah, that's right. We're looking at one of really only a handful of existing volumes. This this publication called The Anthropology of Florida, as you said, published in 1922, had a very limited publication. Probably less than 100 copies exist today. This is a very, very fine copy. It was probably only opened a handful of times in the last almost century or so. But it's a really detailed account of all of his field work in Florida. But he also went back to several museums. As I mentioned, the Natural History Museum in New York, the, the Peabody Museum, 
Museum, the Smithsonian Institution, and pulled together all of the archaeological remains that had already been dug in Florida in the late 19th century and started compiling precise measurements of not only artifacts, but primarily human remains. And he tried to put together a kind of a holistic, all-encompassing view of what indigenous life in Florida specifically looked like. And one of his major contributions that actually comes out of this volume is an estimate of the total populations prior to contact in southwest Florida. And he put that number somewhere between 25,000, 30,000 individuals, which a lot of archaeologists would even accept today as being probably close estimations. He first came to Florida in 1916, spent a couple of weeks here. He actually visited what was called the Vero site, where the state geologist at the time, a man named Elias Sellards, first discovered they were digging a canal and they discovered human remains. And Sellards believed that they were very, very old. He brought Hartlischka here, who thought, well, they're probably not that old. And that controversy went on for another century or so. In fact, they're still involved in some excavations and science in that region. He traveled to southwest Florida, and that's where he spent most of his time. He came back in 1918 and actually spent an entire month in Florida. And most of that, the field notes are compiled into this this one volume. So along with his notes, we also have, as you'll see here, these really beautifully done maps. Hartlischka brought with him a camera, so he tried to photograph as much as he could. But as a lot of scientists experienced, especially in Florida at this time period, it was very, very difficult to do field work. He couldn't even find a field crew to do the digging. So he did very, very little actual excavation, but he recorded as much as he could. And and you can see that here in the maps, very, very detailed maps of where mounds are located in southwest Florida, and also some photographs. He photographed Seminole Indians and also some of the pioneers that were living along the southwest coast at that time period. Now, although we wouldn't agree with all of his conclusions today, Hardlishka's work is still considered to be important, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we would classify him as being kind of a product of his times. You know, at at this time period, the early 20th century, what we consider now the science of eugenics was very, very popular. It was really mainstream science in America at that time period. And he kind of allied himself with that movement. And of course, out of that came these conclusions, biological conclusions about racial divisions that would be solidified into law, into immigration policies, into Jim Crow era policies in different states, especially in the South. So those conclusions, of course, we dismiss today. However, in the back of this volume, you see it's just filled with all of these tables and charts and and very accurate measurements of the remains of of indigenous peoples that he found in Florida. You know, that basis, that solid basis is rooted in the numbers, essentially, of science, the actual measurements. Archaeologists still use today because it's sort of a a benchmark. So we know that, you know, a lot of, so much of these sites have been destroyed. Here was someone who came here before hyperdevelopment recorded at least a lot of these artifacts, and they can use that as kind of a statistical basis to then further more contemporary studies. Ben, you mentioned earlier the theories of prehistoric human migration that Hardlischka developed. His is still the traditionally accepted view, right? Yeah, that's right. By the turn of the 20th century, he had begun compiling a lot of information from around the world. As I said, he traveled throughout Asia, Siberia, parts of Alaska, and he started theorizing about what we now refer to as the Bering Land Bridge migration theory. And that specifically talks about the movement of early humans from Asia across during the last ice age, about 16,000 years ago, across what was exposed land between Alaska and Siberia, the Bering Land Bridge what we call Beringia is the other name for it. 
into North America. And it was those populations that moved south towards what is present-day Canada, into the continental United States, and eventually to Florida. So he really was one of the first to compile a lot of data based on the anthropological remains, the skeletal remains of human beings, comparing it to, of course, this is pre-DNA, but comparing it to contemporary populations, and then began developing that theory. And that theory, of course, is still as you mentioned, still widely accepted today as probably the best reasoning, at least for how human beings began to come into North America. There are, of course, competing theories today. And the timeline was off. I mean, originally, he had theorized that this occurred about 3,000 years ago. Archaeologists and anthropologists have now moved that back closer to 16,500 years ago, when human beings at least first came across that land bridge. And there were different waves of migration. And the theory really got much more complex over the course of the last century. But beginning Beginning in about 1898 through 1902, 1903 is when Hardlishka really developed and honed the beginnings, the base theory, at least, for what would become the Bering Land Bridge theory. That's a fascinating document. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the book that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Dry bones of them, 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 them. Dry bones, now This is Florida Frontiers. Lillian Smith was an opponent of racial and gender inequities in the mid-20th century. Holly Baker has this report. Florida-born Lillian Smith was a white author, editor, and civil rights activist who emerged as a writer in 1944 with her novel Strange Fruit about an interracial romance during the time when black and white unions were forbidden. In her writings, Lillian Smith was outspoken about racial equality. She often stood alone while calling for an end to segregation laws and practices in the Jim Crow South. Dr. Matthew Touch is the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College in Clayton, Georgia. She was born in Jasper, Florida in 1897, one of 10 children born to Calvin and Ann Simpson Smith. Her dad was a mill owner. They had different properties. In 1915, when the war was going on, the mill business basically tanked and they moved to their summer house up in Clayton, Georgia, which they bought. But she would go and work in in some of the hotels and stuff in Florida and elsewhere that her family owned uh, to help make money. Lillian Smith's father's turpentine mill in Jasper, Florida, went under in 1915. The family moved to their summer home in Georgia, where her father bought property on Screamer Mountain and opened a summer camp called the Laurel Falls Camp for Girls. Laurel Falls Camp became an educational institute known for its instruction in the arts, music, and drama. Between 1916 and 1917, Lillian Smith stayed behind in Florida to run the family hotel in Daytona Beach. While in Florida, she was urged to pursue her passion for music by a violinist, a man who became her first love. In 1922, Lillian Smith moved to China to become the director of music at a school for girls in Huzhou, China. Dr. Touch. There in China is where she really kind of, it hit her 
that what was going on in China with the British and the colonial occupation of China and the British keeping the Chinese out of their own lands, basically, and walling themselves off and all this other stuff, the way they were treating them was the same thing that we were doing in America, especially in the Jim Crow South. So she called that a really eye-opening moment for her. And then she came back from 25 because her parents wanted to help run the camp because they were getting ill. So she took over the camp and ran the camp from 25 to 48. After three years in China, Lillian Smith returned home to help her family run the Laurel Falls Camp for Girls. She also started her career as a writer and editor. In 1936, she began publishing Pseudopodia, a magazine she edited with her companion Paula Snelling. In 1942, the title was changed to South Today. Two years later, her award-winning first book, Strange Fruit, was published. The novel about an interracial romance was followed by six more books, including Killers of the Dream, an autobiographical work warning against the evils of segregation. Killers of the Dream was kind of her, you know, personal memoir, her, her deep dive into herself, disentangling herself from basically what she's learned in her culture. But she wrote Now is the Time, which was her um, reaction to, to Brown versus Board. You know, what do we do now, basically, in 55? Um, one Hour was her other novel, um, The Journey, which is one of my favorite books, but kind of her, her existential journey after she finds out she has cancer and just traveling out, searching about what it means to be human, essentially, which is, I think is what a lot of what her work's doing. Lillian Smith's civil rights activism is evident in her books and her magazine articles. Her magazine showcased the work of Black authors and challenged white Southerners to become allies by joining with African Americans in their fight for racial equality. In there, she has a lot of essays that are dealing with race, dealing with segregation. And you can see she's very proactive. In 19, I think this is 1942 issue, she has addressed to intelligent white Southerners, there are things to do. It's this list, it's basically this 10 page list of things that you can do. And some of them are easy, like sit next to a black person on the bus. Whenever you have a chance of not being segregated, quietly take it, such as sitting uh, by a black person on a bus or streetcar standing by one. She talks about reading books, subscribing to, to black magazines, who you're listening to, what books are you reading? Are you reading books about black authors? Are you inviting black speakers to speak at your Rotary Clubs, Lion Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs, Junior Chambers of Commerce could have black speakers at one or more of their meetings this year? Lillian Smith became one of the most liberal and outspoken Southern authors of her time, bringing attention to social issues, especially those concerning racial injustice. Her work caught the attention of important activists of her time, including prominent civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. The two became close friends who corresponded regularly. Dr. Touch. She started corresponding with King in 56. In 56, she was scheduled to give a speech at the one-year anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. And she couldn't give that speech because of her illness, because of her, her breast cancer and everything. So somebody else gave it. But just to show you how much she was at the ground floor, at, at that period. She was very much involved with SNCC at its beginning. She was involved with NAACP. She was involved with CORE. She was involved with all of these groups. She donated to them. I found a ledger from at the camp from the 40s. She donated to the ACLU. I mean, very much involved, whether monetarily on boards or any of this stuff. Lillian Smith died of cancer on September 28, 1966, at the age of 68. Today, during the Black Lives Matter movement, Lillian Smith's work is still relevant. Her memory lives on in the Lillian E. Smith Center of Piedmont College, an educational center and artist retreat in Clayton, Georgia. Lillian Smith is also remembered in a 2019 documentary by Hal and Henry Jacobs called Breaking the Silence. The documentary gives an overview of her life and her fight to end white supremacy and segregation. 
For more information about the documentary and how to attend virtual screenings, go to LillianSmithDoc.com. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, join us on Facebook and find us online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.